Hello and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Kirsten Korosek of TechCrunch. Kirsten, hello. Hello. Uh, sadly, Alex Roy cannot be with us today. Um, and he will therefore be missing what promises to be a fascinating conversation uh, about uh, ensuring the future mobility. Um, joining us for this conversation is Grady Irie. He's the Senior Vice President uh, for Data Science and Analytics at Arity. Uh, Grady, welcome to the Atonicast. Thanks for having me. I'd appreciate it. Yeah, no, this is great. We, we've actually been meaning to discuss this this topic of of insurance, uh, particularly around AVs, but also ride hailing. It's it's it really cuts to the heart of some of the most important issues around um, you know the future of mobility in in a variety of of ways and forms. Um, but just for some background before we start to dive into the the nitty gritty, um, can you just tell us um, a little bit about like what Arity is, why it was why it was created? Um, because I think it's 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 part of Allstate, right? Yeah, we're actually a wholly owned subsidiary of the Allstate Corporation, and and the background really is um, something like ten years ago or more. Um, Allstate had started to make investments into what really was just R and D at that point into the area of telematics, uh, which really just means the ability to originate data from vehicles. Uh, to ingest the data, to process the data, to normalize it, and to be able to glean something meaningful from it. And, and early on, all that meant was we'd bought some of these devices, these uh, OBD2 or onboard diagnostic devices, and plugged them into some cars uh, to collect data. And it was all sort of grounded in this uh, hypothesis, turned out to be a really good hypothesis, that that kind of data would be really important to uh, understanding individual driving risk, uh, something that, that all stayed and uh, many other companies have, have really been uh, prioritizing for a long time, getting new forms of data to better understand individual driving risk. And, and five years into that, um, it had become pretty clear that going from R&D to nearly a million connected vehicles, uh, processing and, and originating uh, and, and, uh, and gleaning insights from all of that data, we got pretty good at this. And, and we'd established valuable capabilities in an emerging area that, that we saw is, is super important to the future of transportation. Um, and so the, the decision was made to take all of the resources that we had realized through this work and to separate them out into a new entity. Uh, and that entity is now known as Arity. And the idea is that all of these uh, capabilities that we've developed and what we've been able to learn through telematics about individual driving risk is, is not just valuable to the Allstate Corporation, but it's valuable to transportation in general. And so we could have just decided to kind of keep this to ourselves. Uh, but what we've decided is that uh, opening up uh, what we know to the rest of the world, including other insurance companies, is, is part of our strategy. And so we created Arity with the mission to make transportation smarter, safer, and more useful for everyone. Uh, and it kind of reflects what we're all observing about transportation, that things are changing. Uh, the, the modes of transportation and, and the ways of transportation for the average person um, are changing dramatically and changing rapidly. And it's going to be important for us uh, to make sure that we understand the impacts of those changes and how we can stay prepared uh, to protect people and to enable people to engage in the economy. Yeah. Are you looking at um, 
when you're looking at data, at collecting data, are you fo- and sort of under this umbrella of the future of transportation, are you focused on a specific area? Um, so rideshare or scooters? Are you collecting data um, on on every mode of transportation? Because future of transportation is sort of is very broad and it means a lot of different things. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I would, uh, wouldn't go so far as to say we're collecting data on every mode of transportation. Uh, the way, and, and nor would I say that we're focused uniquely on uh, sort of like one use case. The way I think about it is at our core, what we're really good at is originating the data, whether the source is a plug-in device or it's embedded technology built into a vehicle from a factory or it's um, a phone in the pocket, I hope, of the driver. Uh, I guess it could be in the cup holder in their hand too, but we're really good at originating the data uh, and we're really good at understanding what it means. Uh, and, and so the use cases are really what emerges as transportation evolves. And so certainly rideshare is one of the areas that we're focused on. And I think you can understand why. I mean, you look at rideshare is a great example of how transportation has evolved and emerged. It, you go back uh 15 years ago, um, and, and people had a really terrible choice, in my opinion. They could either own a vehicle, which is super expensive, and low utilization, so super low efficiency. The average vehicle is used about 4% of the time. Um, or they could use public transportation or, or taxi cabs, and, and that's a really kind of a, a, a raw and, and not a great experience either, standing on a corner in a day like today in Chicago where it's snowing sideways and trying to hail a cab. And and, and entrepreneurs emerged into this space and said, listen, there's a better way we can solve a problem for consumers with rideshare. We find people, and there's a lot of people that have cars that aren't used most of the time. Uh, and, and there's a lot of people that could use rides, and so we'll put them together. Uh, but what emerged from that is, like, while these companies were great at understanding kind of economics and how to build a platform to connect groups of people, uh, they don't really have an inherent understanding of driving risk. Uh, and we do. And so we can help them with that. So um, telematics and our understanding of telematics and how it relates to risk can manifest in value to rideshare companies the same way it can for car share companies, the same way it can for insurance companies. And so we're focused where the need is. And those are some of the areas that have emerged first. You mentioned scooters being a part of the future of transportation. And certainly that's true. You can go around uh, to some of my favorite cities and see a whole slew of scooters lying around on the sidewalks all over the place. Uh, and, and in fact, we are collecting uh, data on scooters and some of these other emerging transportation methods. But like I said, I wouldn't go so far as to say we're collecting from all of them. It's fascinating to me that, right, like, uh, you know, certainly when you look at autonomous vehicles and stuff, you you can understand how when you have these sort of extremely rich sources of data, including cameras and LIDAR and radar and things like that, that you can get these really sophisticated uh, understandings of, of a street scene and an interaction and, and, and all kinds of things. But like when you're talking about an OBD uh, dongle or 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 just sort of you know vehicle data without sort of street scene data uh, accompanying it, um, it, it's harder to understand for someone with like no real knowledge of this stuff, like myself, uh, how you're able to get sort of such good apparently insights um, uh, into driver safety, like how safe a driver really is. Can you just talk a little bit about how that that telematics data? Uh, you know, how is that, how are you able to turn that into, into the kind of insights that you are, or are you also starting to, um, expand into, you know, also including, uh, maybe, maybe camera data and, and, and other kinds of sensor data to sort of enrich that? 
Yeah, I would say that. So I can, I, I'll, I'll answer the question and I'll tell you real quickly that, yes, we are starting uh, to get into camera data as well, but um, maybe not quite yet in the way that, that you would think. So I think the first thing I would say um, with respect to camera data, LIDAR, radar, and, and how that adds to an understanding of risk that you might get um, from more traditional, and it's even funny to say that, but that's how fast tech moves, more traditional telematics data. A lot of uh, the former really is is adding context, right? So uh, I feel like some of that was implied in the question that uh, if I just sort of collect telematics data and understand um, velocity and I understand change in speed and I understand um, sudden movements of a vehicle in, in, in a vacuum that could be so valuable, but wouldn't it be more valuable if I knew why those things were happening? And so camera data and some of these other sources can provide context to that, but they're not the only ways to gather context. Uh, and so today as we speak, um, and, and what we've done, uh, over the decade that we've been processing this type of data is adding context to the telematics data. And frankly, um, that's necessary in many respects just to get uh, core value out of it. And here's what I mean by that. Um, whether you're using a plug-in device or you're um, interacting with technology that was bet- embedded in the vehicle when it was when it was built, or you're interacting with a cell phone, um, it's not practical to just flip on all the sensors and have them pump high-frequency data into a platform. Um, there's a variety of reasons why that isn't practical, but the easiest one for consumers to understand is what's going to happen to my cell phone if I'm doing that? What's going to happen to the battery? What's going to happen to the data plan? So you actually have to interact with the software on that phone, the operating system, uh, and those sensors in a smart way. You have to know what to ask for at what frequency from which sensors. And the only way you can do that is if you actually do collect high-frequency data for some period of time And then you marry that data up with the outcome data, i.e. whether or not accidents happened and other events that happened along the way. And so being able to add context to data is a requirement just to actually collect the data efficiently in the first place. And then more, I think, to your question, which is how do I actually understand the context of the behaviors that people exhibit while they're driving? Some of that you can actually gather just by doing things like uh, pulling map data in. Uh, pulling traffic flow data in, et cetera. Certainly that isn't going as far as to say for the same trip, I've got LIDAR and radar data, but it takes you a good portion of the way there. Um, And then the other thing that I would add is um, if in fact what we're trying to do, and again, there's many use cases, but if you're trying to come up with the appropriate price for an individual risk, Sometimes it really doesn't matter if if a hard braking event was because somebody pulled out of a parking lot in front of them or because they were looking at their phone and then suddenly noticed that a car had slowed in front of them. Environment matters in terms of risk, right? It doesn't necessarily mean that you're just uh, irresponsible, uh, but it does actually impact the likelihood that you're going to have an accident and the amount of damage that will be incurred if you do have an accident, if that makes sense. It does. I'm interested, since we were talking about rideshare earlier, um, just starting off by giving us an, a sense of some of the most interesting data, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of it, but some of the big trend points, I guess, and, and how maybe the rideshare data that you have collected and analyzed is different than data collected and analyzed in the past as it compared to your typical traditional consumer who is just driving a private vehicle for themselves? 
Sure. Well, actually, one of the most interesting things that we've experienced in rideshare is probably going to surprise you. Um, but if you think about it a little bit, I think you'll you realize that it makes a ton of sense. Um, I mentioned before that you know companies like Lyft and Uber and and in and the smaller ones that have emerged have really emerged to solve a, a consumer problem, right? They they had bad choices, uh, and so rideshare actually emerged and gave them a better choice, arguably anyway. Uh, I own a couple of vehicles actually, my wife and I do, and I still use rideshare on a regular basis because transactionally it's a better choice for me at times. Um, and so, but these these companies emerged as really ideas to solve consumer problems, and not necessarily possessing any real understanding of driving risk. Um, and what they found that as they scale, the cost of risk becomes an increasingly important part of their business model. And you see this as as uh, in pre filings to go public. One of the biggest costs that these companies uh, have to deal with is the cost of insurance. And insurance is a direct reflection of, of the risk of their drivers. And so one of the first things that, that we've been successful with in market, frankly, both in rideshare and in car share and in car subscription, uh, which is different, um, is, is more traditional upfront underwriting, literally taking more traditional characteristics from the drivers or prospective drivers and subscribers to these platforms and running them through a predictive model to say, essentially, here's the relative expected value of loss costs associated with this driver. Rideshare companies were really just taking kind of the, the commercial underwriting guidelines associated with whatever carrier they were working with and literally just using that as upfront driver screening. And what we found is there are way more efficient ways to approach this. In fact, sometimes those, uh, sometimes those up upfront underwriting guides used by their commercial carrier were having them screen out drivers that actually were good risks. And so, and a lot of the, uh, and I'm sure you've heard this, these companies fight over drivers. So there's value added just by helping them to be smarter about who they don't screen out using more traditional techniques. On the other hand, uh, getting more at the question of how are they different from uh, more private passenger, passenger vehicle drivers, telematics, uh, when it emerged, one of the, the most important variables used in most models was actually the number of miles people drive. Uh, and so that's a that has been a big differentiator in insurance pricing pretty much from the beginning. Um, and years and years ago, it was more kind of an on your honor sort of variable. And then we got into some verification uh, through various methods. Uh, and with telematics, it became a heck of a lot easier. But when you look at rideshare, you don't necessarily differentiate between the risk of two rideshare drivers based on mileage. You need to understand kind of like the risk per mile, if you will, or some way to normalize for the miles that those people are driving. And you don't necessarily want to, um, uh, to disincentivize somebody from driving more. So understanding kind of the context of that, you need to look at different um, predictor variables to really differentiate between the risk of two rideshare drivers. But at the end of the day, whatever we come up with is going to be better than rating a driver four stars uh, because the car smelled good and they gave you a mint. Right. Uh, really quick. I mean, you mentioned that this is becoming more important because of scale. Is is part of this also one of the things we hear about with with Uber and Lyft is that they kind of you know group you know achieved a lot of scale sort of in a period when the labor market was a little bit looser. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about the churn uh, with drivers. Um, is this is this 
this increased importance of, of screening and, and understanding the safety of drivers, is this purely about scale or is this also sort of tied to the fact that like just the market for good drivers has gotten tighter um, for these companies? Is that is that a factor here? Uh, well, I think it could be a factor. I will say this, that what we saw, even when the market was looser, that that these companies were subsidizing the drivers. And so even at a, at a trip level, they were actually losing money when they were subsidizing drivers. Some of that through the marketing programs, uh, some of that through driver retention programs. Um, but that that competing for drivers has really been a drain or a drag on these companies' ability to make money. And I think that continues and maybe it's only exacerbated as the, as the market has tightened. But the, the idea around um, the cost of insurance or the cost of risk associated with the business model uh, becoming more meaningful at scale, I think really just comes down to when you're first starting out and you're a smaller company, and, and you're kind of small enough that it, it's okay to be naive about some things, um, that becomes super meaningful when your company goes from, you know, uh, we're, we're playing with tens of millions of dollars to now we're in the hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. It becomes very clear, especially when, uh, when considering going public, which of these components of your economic model you need to get your arms around. And I think we're starting to see that now. Uh, with the transition from privately held to public companies and how that stock price has reacted. Yeah. And, and how, what, like what kind of savings, like what, what is the potential impact on, on one of these businesses, which as you say, like the scale really has gotten, gotten huge. Uh, what, like by, by improving the data collection and, and processing, like what, what kind of impact can that have on these sort of notoriously money losing businesses? Is that enough on its own to, to sort of turn an Uber or Lyft profitable or, or, or sort of what, you know, how can you quantify that impact? So we can only see what we can see, right? And, and we don't have 100% transparency uh, into all of the economics of, of either one of those companies uh, or any of the others um, uh, for that matter. But what I will say is what we know of um, the ability to use telematics to better understand individual driving risk and to actually, there's a number of different ways you can approach it. You can change the way that you pay drivers. You can actually decide to use this as a way to screen drivers. Uh, you can use it as a way to incentivize other drivers. But no matter how you, you use it, what we do know is that the spread that you can see and the risk of the driver pool is far broader when you use telematics data. And so when you think about the fact that um, that the cost of insuring these drivers uh, and to some extent these vehicles is having maybe only second to their platform costs in the economics of these businesses, being able to identify individual drivers that are, say, two, three, four, five times worse than the average driver, I think you can get a sense for there's a meaningful difference that can be made by deploying some of the ins insights. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering how you see with increasing uh, advanced driver assistance systems coming into vehicles and higher levels of automation, if you're already tracking that and how it relates to, you know, driver risk for one. Um, and if there are new risks now uh, popping up as a result of, in some cases, people relying too heavily on ADAS systems. Yeah, that second one is super interesting and it gets, uh, it's a complicated problem to solve. But maybe I would start with um, 
we're always interested in understanding whether these emerging safety technologies that are built into vehicles from the factory, whether or not they they have an impact in in the real world. Um, and just understanding that well requires understanding which vehicles have which equipment, when and whether that equipment is actually activated or if it's been overridden by the driver. Um, understanding the exposure that those vehicles are are um, seeing and the outcomes and actually being able to to normalize for all other conditions. In other words, like this too is a problem solved by really big and hopefully really clean data. It's hard. Uh, and frankly, the automakers have made it harder because they've made it increasingly difficult to understand what equipment is on the vehicle based on the VIN. It's a bit of an example of cutting one's nose off to spite one's face uh, because the automakers want credit for the safety impact of all of this tech, both in the buyer's perceptions and in the price those buyers have to pay for auto insurance. Uh, but they wanted to keep kind of keep some of their IP hidden. And so it's an interesting um, conundrum there. Um, it, we should also understand that like new tech is tested first by the maker and then as the vehicles come off the line by a handful of uh, impartial safety ratings agencies but all of that testing is done in a controlled environment so we don't really know what kind of impact it has in the real world until we have experience in the real world um, and frankly insurance companies are, are those that really kind of understand that experience first thing is we've been down this road before over and over throughout the history of the automobile and it's fair to say that there are signs that indicate a positive impact from advanced automotive safety technologies, both in terms of accident frequency and severity. Uh, the latter, though, is less clear than the former uh, because new tech is more expensive. And so repairs needed when accidents do happen are also more expensive. I think the last thing that you mentioned around um, how people are changing their behavior because of the technology is a super interesting one. And I think that's less understood at this point. Um, we do see those anecdotal examples with uh, Tesla drivers, you know, playing cards and going to sleep while they've got the autopilot on. Uh, but I, certainly there are a lot more examples out there of if I have an automatic braking system on my car, am I more likely to be staring at my phone as I'm traveling down the freeway? And I'm quite certain that there is a lot of that going on. Uh, what we're doing right now is really trying to understand the impact of distracted driving using telematics. Um, as ADAS information becomes more readily available, we can marry the two up and understand that that interaction that you're describing. And what what kind of data sources do you need to to do that? I mean, you mentioned that the automakers are not making it easier. Like, what from from your perspective, like what what kinds of data or what what would you want access to to be able to sort of get more granular into into some of these, as you say, very complex issues? So, perfect world, and really, regardless of the source. Um, we would be able to understand what features, what safety features were enabled, not only present on a vehicle, but enabled on a vehicle, whether or not they were being overridden or whether they were active and how many times that particular feature or technology had to actively engage during a trip. We would want to collect all of that data. And not, it doesn't matter to us whether it's something that we read through an OBD2 device or uh, some through an integration with the automaker. Uh, but it, you can understand that it's a difficult problem. The automakers haven't really built their businesses around uh, kind of generating this type of data and making this data available 
outside of their own R&D teams. And there are all sorts of concerns that, that they need to uh, confront as they do that. But we're heading in that direction. And I've got uh, a fair amount of confidence that we're going to be in a much more um, active space with regard to that kind of data very soon. Um, the, the other thing I would mention is that um, the automakers really want that to happen. They're going to be careful because of privacy concerns and competitive concerns, uh, et cetera. But they really want it to happen because they, too, need to understand what is the effect of these safety technologies in the real world. And you can't really get at that through uh, vehicle testing uh, on the grounds of, uh, of a automotive OEM or even at, at one of these more impartial safety ratings agencies. And and like. It seems to me that one of the reasons that we're going to have to get more granular data around this is because as we start to move beyond level two towards level three, then all of a sudden we have situations where the ultimate responsibility for what's going on uh, will will transition. It won't just be sort of what is the impact of this technology on the driver. It will be sort of at what times is the car responsible for what's going on and at what times is the is the driver responsible for what's going on, right? And 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 sort of delineating that responsibility is is also going to be a, a big challenge that was going to require a lot of data, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And, and like any other uh, risk situation, we, we, we need to step back sometimes and understand kind of like what insurance means uh, to the economy. And insurance is just an enabler of economic activity, right? So to allow these things to happen, there needs to be protection in place. There needs to be insurance in place. And when there's these emergent risks uh, we tend to see that the market is tentative about approaching those risks. And and those that will approach it are those that have the confidence of understanding it. And that's only going to come through data, right? And so um, you're putting the question out there of like, actually, who will bear the risk? And in a great insurance market, it's like there will be a lot of people who want to bear the risk or a lot of entities that want to bear the risk. Uh, as these things emerge, I think it's going to be, it'll start with reluctance and then it'll start with, um, it, it'll follow with uh, some more assertive um, speculation, and then we'll get into data will actually be much more informative, and we'll start to see sort of classic insurance markets sort of emerge uh, where people are looking to sort of balance out portfolios, and it'll work very nicely at that point. Do you see that um, assessing who is actually in control of the vehicle, which basically assessing who could be potentially at fault or bear responsibility um, when it comes to once we have level three in a more ubiquitous fashion in, in vehicles. You know, right now there's like a few tiny examples um, and they're not really uh, available in the U.S., is that going to be the the biggest challenge moving forward in terms of greater automation in vehicles is determining that who is at fault as and, and you were talking about sort of this this economic opportunity that um, could be created and people potentially um, jumping into that but is that going to be the most difficult piece or is there another crux if you will to to this next level of automation that's going to be happening in vehicles uh, I, I tend to think that the reconciliation of um, apportioning out responsibility in the wake of an accident happening, I, I can't believe that that's going to be the hardest problem to solve. Um, and, and mostly just because I think that, you know, there will be time to figure those things out. And remember today uh, when uh, in all sorts of insurance scenarios, 
uh, a first party relationship uh, and, and insured to an insurance company, uh, they will get um, coverage for whatever loss they've incurred and they'll move on with their lives. And the insurance company then is left with figuring out, is there a subrogation opportunity, an opportunity for me to go and seek uh, contribution from a party that's liable for that contribution. I think those things will be figured out. There is a lot of a, a, a big data problem there and a, and a system that needs to come together to enable that. But that sort of pattern has, has played out before. I think those pale in comparison to the, the, the hard problems of realizing level three for a whole array of reasons, particularly in an environment where the average age of the vehicle on the roadway today in the U.S. is 11 and a half years old, um, not not a, not a really a, a fraction of a percentage of vehicles that are sold this year will have anywhere close to that level of technology in it. So we're going to be in this sort of mixed mode world for a long time. Uh, and, and so I think more like achieving all of the technological and economic achievements we need to make to get to that world you're describing uh, are far larger than the, the effort to reconcile responsibility in the wake of an accident. So uh, moving towards like level four autonomy, um, you know, uh, Kirsten and I were actually able to to get a ride uh, in uh, on public roads in a fully driverless Waymo recently, um, and it was like kind of a, an amazing experience. Uh, but like one of the questions I asked Waymo, and they kind of dodged it a little bit, was sort of what was the you know how were they able to determine that like you know this vehicle is safe enough for for me to 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 trust my life to it, you know, without even without a human there to to sort of take over if something went wrong. Like, what was the standard for that? Did you ask this after you were in the car or before? No, I, I actually asked it before, and they didn't really give me a a, a real clear answer. Um, which I think for so some you did people, it anyway. I, I did it anyway, right? Which is you know I, I follow the space closely, and and I think Waymo um, has earned a, a certain amount of trust from me. Uh, but I think you know this is a, this is a real issue, right? Because for some people who don't follow the space closely. Like they're not going to necessarily have that same level of confidence that I will. Mm -hmm. um, it seems to me though that like one of the clearest bright lines in all in in this huge like complex question that's just really fascinating. Like like what what kind of clarifies it a little bit is is one question, which is can you get insurance for this? Right? Can you get a company to insure your fully driverless car? So you are uniquely positioned to to answer that question. So I'm curious, like. If a company like Waymo or any other one comes to you and says, "We want to put this driverless car on the road. We want you to insure it," uh, what what do you what do you want to see? Um, it, you know, and, and obviously there's there's not going to be one bright line because it's going to be a cost you know versus risk sort of thing. But but I, I'm just curious how how are you thinking about that problem? How are you approaching that problem? And and are you having to also reach out to to some of these companies maybe to understand the technology more in order to make that decision? Yeah, I tend to think that in most cases, uh, no matter what your situation, you're going to be, be able to find somebody that wants to insure something. Now, I say most, I'm, I'm leaving myself some room there because there, there are certainly uh, some risks that we have found that the market really just doesn't want. So, um, you know, flood insurance is a good example of something that requires or at least has required government backing up to this point. Right. Uh, but generally speaking, unless it looks like it truly is an uninsurable risk, you're going to find a market for it. Now, um, the smaller that market is, the higher premium you're going to have to pay. But but the premium that you have to pay um, in, in the early days is largely speculative. And it, it relates to the kind of the crux of your question, which is until we really understand 
um, the the impact of these technologies and how it manifests in the likelihood of a collision and and the severity of that collision, we're speculating. And our speculation will improve as we realize more data points. But in the early days, I mean, literally, most of these companies are starting off with, here's how we perform on a test track in a very controlled environment. And like that gives us some sense of how it works. But I would say it's a it's a far, far um, uh, road to hoe from that point to real confidence in understanding how that technology works in the wild. Uh, when you step out from that company actually doing the testing to, say, uh, an IIHS Hildy or, or some other uh, more impartial safety testing uh, organization, we can get a little bit more information. But those tests still are done in a very controlled environment. So unfortunately, in many respects, uh, we really can't understand how much of a premium you might be paying in the market for insurance coverage until you collect enough data in the real world environment to be able to answer those questions. But once you have that data, what you should see is that there will be a more of a market for that risk. And so the premiums generally, the premium between what you should be paying and what you're actually paying uh, should reduce as the market opens up. Uh, that so in my in when you ask what I'd be looking for, I'm looking for that real world data. This is actually um, there's a there's sort of a great comparison you can make to the way that Tesla approaches testing new technologies to say any more traditional automaker, where the traditional automaker may go to one of these test tracks and you know do hundreds, thousands of miles in a controlled environment where Tesla will download new firmware into a vehicle and all of their vehicles or a portion of their vehicles over the air and actually realize real world impact uh, immediately. And I think it's the latter, which may make us more uncomfortable, but actually gets us to understand it faster. So I want to talk about those that those critical data points for a moment. I would assume that in a world when AVs start emerging and becoming, you know, more, at least in certain cities, a part of everyday life, the real world data that it would be critical would be something like miles driven and comparing that to crashes, for example, or incidents. Is there some other data point or data points that will be, will create that fuller picture that you were talking about that will lead to this moment where then a market will be created? Well, I think you got uh, you got to some of the core elements. Uh, I think in addition to whether or not there were crashes, but um, how severe the crashes were, where the damagers were specifically on the vehicle, whether or not there were injuries, whether the injuries occurred inside of the uh, the autonomously enabled vehicle or in the other vehicle, whether there were pedestrians involved, um, some of the context that we referred to earlier. Um, I think all of that will create a, a more precise and hopefully more accurate view. Uh, but once you really have the exposure base, whether that's miles driven or something else, and you have the claims data, um, and, and then the sensor data sort of telling you what was happening, that's a pretty good view. And I think once you get to that point, uh, there should be an emergent market to to cover these risks. There, in in this scenario, whether this is just you know the failure of humans to uh, to truly trust technology, or it's the success of humans in in really kind of understanding uh, that there are things that I don't understand and I need to account for them. I think there will always be um, the uh, the parallel to. 
a catastrophic risk that I can't quantify, but I need to sort of have that load in my economic model associated with this technology. Maybe it's uh, sort of, you know, something that somebody's seen too many movies, uh, the Terminator is going to take over. But I think until there's a sufficient, sufficient scaled experience, there's always going to be some, some quantification or, or some accounting for the part that I still don't understand. But that, that load should diminish as experience is gained. And, and our companies, I mean, uh, right? Because as you say, you you and, and it's funny because your answer to this is actually quite similar to to sort of what Waymo said about uh, about this question of of when was it safe enough? Which is you really have to just look at tons and tons of data over a long period of time. There really isn't one any one metric or 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 what relationship between two metrics or anything. It's it's a it's a big complex picture. I'm wondering. I mean that that it seems to me creates a, a really interesting sharing problem, right? Because these companies, I mean, this data is their lifeblood in a lot of ways, and they have to then sort of share it with you. Um, and then also, you know, there's some question too about we've seen, you know, in this sort of race to autonomy, uh, you know, a lot of efforts to sort of make things look better than they really are, mm-hmm. uh, and to sort of steal some of the warts. And and so I think from your perspective, I'm I'm just curious, you know. Are companies open to sharing the, the huge amounts of data about these these self-driving vehicles that, that you would need to start to 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 ensure them? And and can you trust that these companies are really all sharing uh you know real data that this isn't being massaged? How do, how do you deal with some of those issues? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think um, you know, some of what you're describing is that there's a bias in the source, right? So um, if I'm working in one of these companies, it's it's really good for me if the data shows that these vehicles perform very well. And so there's like an incentive for me to cleanse the data, to you know tweak it, to make it look a little bit better than it might be otherwise. But I think as soon as you start to view the situation that way, um, there's a fundamental problem in your company that ultimately is likely to take your company down. We've seen examples of that um, uh, over the last 10 years that I think should be uh, in the forefront of people's minds. Um, we have found uh, that some of these emergent technology companies are willing to share data. Interestingly, interestingly enough, in many cases, it's because they want data on how human beings behave behind the wheel. Because part of the problem they're trying to solve for, it's actually much easier to, and I'm no expert, but this is what I've read and this is what I've heard, and, and it's intuitively uh, makes sense to me. It's much easier to engineer and program a, a vehicle to interact with other technology-controlled vehicles than it is for them to, to engineer and, and program them to interact with vehicles that are operated by humans. Humans are harder to predict, uh, and especially when you've got you know a whole array of humans out on the roadways, and they don't, they don't all perform and behave the same. Uh, so in many cases, these companies are very willing to share data and uh, in, in more of a transactional basis, so that they can better understand how humans drive. Do you foresee a either an organization or institution, or maybe it's Arity, becoming sort of a clearinghouse of data? Or um, in, in the in a world just specifically focused on autonomous vehicles, um, as sort of a way to um, maybe it's a, a governmental body or maybe it's a, a nonprofit. But I think of of all the different organizations out there that 
maybe it's Consumer Reports or IHS that try to do safety ratings on specific vehicles, let's say. Um, and that's not necessarily sharing data, but it does provide the consumer, let's say, with some with some information and maybe even the insurance um, uh, industry. So I wonder if you foresee an organization or maybe one already exists that will be this sort of clearinghouse of data that will be fundamental for assessing um, or in analyzing these kind of findings for autonomous vehicles. Yeah, I think, um, I think the idea makes a ton of sense, right? Especially if everyone kind of puts aside uh, individual agenda and we sort of look at, you know, the problem we're trying to solve is to make transportation smarter, safer, and more useful for everyone. That, that's how we articulate it. And Arity, that's our mission. That's our purpose. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm quite certain, I have confidence that there are many others out there who feel the same way. Um, and if we're all too tight in controlling the data that we possess that can help us to answer that question, then, you know, by definition, we're not doing everything that we can to answer that question and to enable that that mission, that, that future uh, that we're looking for. And so um, I, I think what we need to do is to move in that direction and, and to first understand what is it that's preventing us from being willing to share uh, and, and to kind of uh, interrogate that question and to confront it and to figure out what would enable us uh, to feel more comfortable sharing. Because I think it's the sharing of that data, whether it's a clearinghouse or, or some other uh, infrastructure that is actually going to make everybody who participates in this emerging transportation economy uh, to do it more effectively and to make uh, a safer world for all of us who are out on the roads. Great. Well, um, we should probably wrap it up there. I mean, I have a, a ton of of other questions I'd, I'd love to ask, but we are running out of time here. Um, do you want to ask one more question then? I mean, I, I would just be curious <laughs> what, you know, what you see as sort of one of one of the thorniest, we've discussed like a whole bunch of different problems in a whole bunch of different spaces. Is there one that 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 leaps out at you as being sort of the the biggest challenge that like over the next ten years, Arity is going to have to solve? The biggest challenge. Um, He's ending with a, early, a really easy question for you. Yeah, I know. yeah, that's okay. It's it's good. Um, so I, I, when I think about bigger challenges that we'll face over the next ten years. I, I think it's really the complexity of uh, interactions that that we need to to uh, nimbly navigate in order to achieve the results that we're looking for to make transportation safer. And what I mean by that is uh, we have the sort of end user and consumer uh, to worry about. We've got to make sure that end user and consumer feels safe and secure and private. We've got uh, legal entities to worry about. And, and oftentimes with the right intent uh, and, and the right priority, sometimes creates more complexity than really is warranted. We have the competitive ecosystem to worry about. And I mentioned that a couple of minutes ago, that sometimes out of competitive reasons, we don't share information uh, that if we had might make us all better and making the world uh, safer. Uh, and then sometimes we have our internal struggles that we deal with. So, um, I, I think it's it's really we like to think of technology and emerging technology is going to create new and, and more interesting problems that might make the world um, uh, even even harder for us to figure out. But ironically, I think oftentimes these emerging technology spaces actually inform us that some of the same problems we've been dealing with for the last hundred years are still some of the harder problems that we have to solve. 
I think that's true here too. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Um, and, and it kind of gets to what you were saying before about about you know how even the the folks who are who are dealing with uh, this like cutting edge of incredibly complex technologies for them the big challenge is just understanding people right and and here we have with you know all this experience to you know try and understand how people think and reason and interact and and it's still to this day like one of the hardest things to to really understand right but actually one of the most interesting emergent fields is sort of the area of behavioral science and and neuroscience and the combination of those two boy, I think uh, we're making strides like never before. And it's some of the most interesting things you can, you can get into. Yeah. Cool. Well, maybe we'll, uh, we'll have to have you back and, and just discuss some of that because uh, that was actually one of the things that, that also came out of our uh, recent Waymo ride is, is their, their struggle to understand human, human interaction, human behavior. Uh, and they're sort of having to double down on, on behavioral psychology research uh, in order to, to make progress on that. So um, it's, it's fascinating how sort of, Everybody who's involved in this cutting edge of technology seems more and more focused on humans than ever. Um, that's that's just a fascinating insight in and of itself. Um, so we do have to go, unfortunately. But um, if, uh, if folks want to follow maybe you on social media or online or, or Arity, um, if you've got a, a, a social media account or, or a website or something you'd like to to uh, plug, uh, this, this would be the time. Yeah, that's great. I, I would uh, point people to LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, you can find Arity on LinkedIn. I have recently, you're going to think of me as a sort of a, uh, a latter-day Luddite. I have uh, gotten rid of any other social media account. I found that uh, the time I spend there is time I can't spend making progress in, in the areas most important to me. So that's yeah, no, that's <laughs> if only we could all have that that level of discipline. <laughs> well, I didn't always have it. And by all, Ed's, Ed's talking about himself right now, so it's fine. I I really am. Well, thanks again for joining us, and we should definitely have you back. I'd love to be back. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Great. Thank you. Thanks.